People Tree Press's literary podcast featuring the best literature from the Caribbean region and diaspora. My name is Malaika Booker and I am the curator and host for this podcast series. In this episode of New Caribbean Voices, I'll be speaking to the Jamaican writer Jacqueline Bishop. We'll be all talking about work, art and just a patchwork of different art forms that she works with. We'll also be hearing Leonie Ross, the Jamaican writer, reading a short story for us called President Daisy. So today I'm speaking to Jacqueline Bishop. She's a Jamaican writer, visual artist and photographer who lives in New York. Bishop is also the author of River Song, two collections of poems, Fauna and Snapshots from Istanbul, an art book, Writers Who Paint, Three Jamaican Artists, and most recently, The Gymnasts and Other Positions, a collection of short stories, essays, and interviews, which won the Nonfiction Award in 2016 OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean Literature. Right now, we're sitting in our office in Manhattan to all talk about writing and Jacqueline's work. The critic, Sherilyn Sterling, has coined the phrase patchwork aesthetic to describe the way that Jacqueline applies her patchwork or her quilt work or her artwork to her literature as well. Robin Stevenson, in her review talks about Jacqueline's visual fascination with coupling stories over and through each other and how that spilled over into the written word, creating her own patchwork quilt of literature. So, ladies and gentlemen, Jacqueline Bishop. It's good to meet up with you and to meet you finally. Good to meet you. I didn't know you were so beautiful in person. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for the compliment. Um, so I know, you know, I've been researching you and reading up about you and people always ask you about the work and ask you about your themes. And, and I thought today we're sitting here as two writers. Maybe we can just talk about the writer. And I wanted to start off, I suppose, with when did you first kind of know you were a writer? When did you first know writing was a preoccupation of yours? I think I always knew that um, writing was a preoccupation of mine. I don't think there was ever a time when it wasn't. Um, I think the distinction um, that I make is writing as it serves me as an individual and writing as an identity, to, to call oneself a writer. You know, there was a sharp distinction in those two things for me. When I look back in my life, I mean, before I was in high school, I was writing poetry, you know, and I was actually very encouraged to do this, which might seem quite atypical. I I grew up in um, a household where this was encouraged by my grandmother. This was encouraged especially by my mother. Um, my little poems would get published at church and so forth and so on. So um, it was recognized very early on that I had a talent for writing. But if you had asked me then 
what I was going to grow up to be, I would say a medical doctor, right? Mm. So writing was always something that I did for myself. It was something that those around me recognized, but it was never going to be a profession. You know, there was a sharp distinction there. And when did you step into the writer identity, the one where you're going into publishing or you, you know, your manuscript is going out to the public. Um, is it the MFA? Because you did an MA program. I think you call it MFA over here. Yeah. And you worked with, I'm jealous of you on that program because you worked with Sharon O's, you worked with um, Paula Marshall. I was like, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I carried on with the charade of being a medical doctor for a very long time. Right? Um, and the fact of the matter is, I'm really terrible at the sciences. I'm really terrible at um, math and all these things, right? But I kept pushing myself and I kept pushing myself and I kept pushing myself. And um, two things intervened, right, to change things for me. One was that I, as an undergraduate, I think um, either it was my sophomore rising junior year or something like that, junior rising, one of those years, um, I went to live in Paris, in France, uh, for a year as an undergrad and was just astonished, you know, because when I lived in Paris, Paris was not a television culture. It was a reading culture. And to be a writer was something very palpable and real in a place like Paris. And added to that, I happened upon being the au pair for a family called the Flammarions. Now, if you know the Flammarions any at all, um, they own the largest publishing house in France. And so I ended up with a family that for, for which writing was a big deal, you know, and being a writer was a big deal. And when when I started ta talking about be, wanting to be a writer, they took this shit seriously, mm. right? Um, in addition to which, my French then and my French now is encore malade, right? It is not very good. And so what I did in France was I read English literature and Caribbean literature and American literature like you wouldn't believe. Wow. So I was just reading and reading and reading. And the trajectory of that was I started at American literature. I'm sorry, I started at English literature. So I was reading all of Tess of the Dubervilles. And I was reading, you know, when I came back with those books, I was really astonished. I, I, I just kept reading. Then I ended up at American literature, the Faulkners and whatnot. From American literature, I found African-American literature. And then one day I found Caribbean literature. And it became real for me, you know, that they were, that this was a possibility for me. The other thing that happened in France is art classes, visual art classes, yeah. right? And so a lot of things just really broke open for me in France that, that year that I lived in France. I realized I probably wasn't going to become a medical doctor. Yeah. <laughs> um, that um, literature was really in my blood, it was really in my bones, and that's where 
it, you know, I started to make the, the shift. Um, and so I ended up going to, to school to study creative writing. And, and did that have an impact? I notice it seems that you go right to yourself, you know what? Yes, creative writing, let me get a foundation in it. And then you, it seems looking at your bio, that then you say, okay, visual art, let me go and get a foundation in it. And has that served you? Is that, you know, as, as, as an artist? That's a very good question. So, in fact, I have too many degrees, to be honest about it. And I have an embarrassing amount of master's degrees, right? I will not say how many. But it seems I'm always trying to quiet these these demons, you mm. know? And so my first love was poetry, and it still is. If you wake me up, that Lorna Goodison asked me this beautiful question, um, and we'll get to talk a, a little bit, I hope, as to why Lorna asked me this question. But Lorna Goodison, who I love enormously, asked me this question. You know, she said, Jacqueline, if, if someone were to wake you up, shake you in the middle of the night and said, who are you, what would you say? And I would probably say a poet you know, because that was my first art form. But um, after I had done poetry, gotten my degree in poetry, I realized that um, the fiction writer in me was there, you know, pulling and pulling away. And that that's what happens in my life, is that once I think I have quieted, I've reached at a place of, okay, I've, I, I've satisfied this, all the things that wanted expression starts pulling and pulling away. And I try to resist them. I mean, I try, I try, I try to stay away from the visual arts for, I think, a full 10 years before I went and gotten, got those degrees in, in, in visual arts as well. And it really was to quiet those pulling away things mm -hmm. inside of me. We're now going to break from this conversation with Jacqueline Bishop and have a literary interlude. Leonie Ross, a novelist, short story writer, editor, journalist and academic of Jamaican and Scottish ancestry, will read us a short story from her recent collection. A bit more about Leonie before we hear that reading. Her first novel, All the Blood is Red, was long-listed for the Orange Prize, and her second novel, Orange Laughter, was chosen as BBC Radio 4's Women's Hour Watershed Fiction Favourite. Ross is currently Senior Lecturer and Creative Writer at Roehampton University in London, and today she reads the story, President Daisy, from her short story collection, Come Let Us Sing Anyway. It was featured on BBC Radio 4 as a good read. In a review for The Guardian, Bernadine Evaristo states that the short story collection demonstrates her imaginative power and great psychological depth. Ross writes with searing empathy and compassion. Let's listen to President Daisy. The women in the carriage shrieked. President Daisy moved faster than anyone Mary had ever seen. He shifted to the right, unfolding himself out of his seat and passed his attacker all in one motion. His tall red hat remained upright, serene and immovable. 
Donovan's fist collided with the window, making a very satisfactory thwacking noise. He howled and cursed, cradling the wounded hand. Boy, I'm fair to you said President Daisy. He was at his full height now. People stared and clamoured. Donovan's woman croaked a protest. Leave the man in impersonal business, Donovan. Business? I mean him for dead. Donovan lunged again at President Daisy, who sidestepped him, making him stumble. The carriage lurched. Donovan righted himself, grunted, and tried to hit him again. Mary realised she was sucking her thumb. She took the offending digit away from her mouth. That was for little girls. She gulped, waiting for the meaty fist to connect with President Daisy's face. President Daisy stepped sideways. There wasn't much space, but he seemed able to move around it like a peeny-wally. Donovan roared in frustration. Mary felt like her head would break into little pieces. Which is when President Daisy reached out and began to tickle the man. It was the last thing anyone could have expected. First, the silver fingers in Donovan's solar plexus as his hands went upwards in defence. His eyes bugged out of his head so hard Mary wanted to laugh. Moving swiftly, his tongue stuck out in concentration. President Daisy danced his hands across his opponent's body, shoulders, stomach, running under his arms, down to his hips, across his neck bones, fingers flying as if he was playing a piano, always two steps ahead before the other man could push him away. Donovan was practically crying in frustration. You're going to stop playing with big man boy, said President Daisy. But it, all right then. But if you play with big man, big man will play with you. Ease off my man, don't touch me. Or what? President Daisy drew nearer. Donovan writhed and shrieked. President Daisy was holding one of his arms above his head, tickling his armpit. You're lucky that woman I'm picking the dead out. Tears streamed down Donovan's face. He began to beg. Please, sir, please. He dropped to his knees, but still President Daisy stooped over him, forcing laughter and painful gasps out of him. Mary thought he looked angry for the first time, and that was a bit scary. President Daisy, she said, as loud as she could. You're going back where boy, you're going to stop, try, frighten, picnic? Yeah, yeah, tell a little girl you're sorry, she near Mary. Chokes, gasps, Missari, Missari, Mary, Missari. Stop, President Daisy, stop, said Mary. President Daisy looked confused, as if he'd been somewhere else, not there. What? She stared at him. Stop tickle him now. It stopped. The American Daisy on the hat swayed gently. Donovan got to his feet, sweating. He looked at President Daisy with something like awe. His sides heaved. You, you touch me? Yes, said President Daisy. I bet a man touch you. Now go down, sit in the other carriage and take your woman with you and tell her nice things. Donovan scrambled backwards. The sweetie woman followed him more slowly. As she passed Mary, she dropped five sweets into her lap. She exchanged a look with President Daisy. President Daisy nodded. Yeah, he said. He sat down. His face seemed sad. Mary looked at him. All those things he'd said and Donovan said. It whirled around her head. Miss Adiasi, President. His face looked like he might cry, and she wanted to hug him so he wasn't upset, but she didn't know how. I'm sorry, Mary. She reached out her hand. You want a tamarind ball? That was the writer, Leonie Watts, reading from her short story collection, Come Let Us Sing Anyway 
and the story that she read today is called President Daisy. We'll now continue this inter the interview with Jacqueline Bishop. It was fascinating, and um, I hope you are um, finding as engaging as I did. So I wanted to ask you something else because you're a very brave writer. You know, you you cross genre. You know, you you have nonfiction work. You have your visual arts. You have your um, fiction. You have poetry. Um, I want to ask you about taking risk and what, what, what's that risk for you sometimes when you're in that space writing? I feel at this stage that nonfiction is more for risk for me than most of the other genres at this point. I feel less sure of myself as a nonfiction writer. I, I feel more tentative in, in the things I have to say as a nonfiction writer. Um, what is developing, what I tried to do for a very long time is to say my fiction is separate from my poetry, is separate from my visual arts, and probably the, the various degrees was an attempt to say to myself, well, can I cut it, you know, in these various genres? and you know, to, to um, answer those questions for myself. But what I'm finding is happening is that they, they are beginning to, to bleed into each other now and they're beginning to feed into each other now so that in the middle of writing, let's say, a fictional piece, it, it's even beginning to start to feel like a poetic piece to me. So I'm not quite sure where I am, you know, and... I guess I have to just ride the process through, you know. Um, I I don't think that I choose this this life per se. I think I'm chosen to tell these stories. Um, I know that sounds all eerie fairy and 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 whatnot, but I I, I oftentimes feel that um, I'm chosen to do these things. So. I might as well choose to trust what is happening, you know, trust the process a little bit, so. It's interesting that you say that things are starting to bleed into each other, because I read that um, Cheryl Sterling, a critic, looking at your work, looking at your quilting, looking at your poetry, looking at your fiction, or looking at your drawings, wasn't it, on your wall when, they, mm -hmm. when she visited you, kind of started to, I don't know, maybe put a microscope to you being able to open your eyes to some of me, what I, what I interpreted as as might be your obsessions or things that um, lay dormant and are germinating for you that are the you know that that's kind of like the DNA of you as an artist. Do you have those? Do you have those, or did that enable you to discover that, or did that enable you to kind of understand the bleeding process that's happening? You know, it's uh, it's a very good question, right? Um, and there was a a person who took what Cheryl wrote in an article that was published in Sasumba, which comes out of Jamaica. Um, this she published this article, and she she said that um, I I can't remember this person's name, but she wrote a really good article, and she said uh, when the gymnast came out, and she said the gym she said something to the effect that the gymnast is we're beginning to see Jacqueline Bishop's patchwork aesthetic. Mm. And I was a bit taken aback, you know, 
because what she was arguing, and I, I think she might be right actually, was that the patchwork aesthetic that my great-grandmother and my grandmother utilized, and which I'm actually going to be doing some um, scholarly work on, was informing my creative writing. Right. <laughs> right. right. And she said it was best displayed in the gymnast, right? And that there was an emerging patchwork aesthetic in my in how I was going about what I was doing. And I thought, wow, you know, this is what um, critics at their best do, you know, because you are the artist and you are so involved in what you're doing that you, you it's very hard to step back and see what you're doing but the article by Cheryl Sterling uh, she was pulling from that you know and a lot of people use Cheryl's article to talk about my work and I think it's a very good article um, but this woman was using Cheryl's article to to talk about this patchwork aesthetic and I thought she was pretty she was pretty right on Another person who has really helped me to understand what I was do what I'm doing is Verly Poupey, who is um, the former executive director of the National Gallery of Jamaica. And she said to me one day, we were driving somewhere, and she said, um, you know, Jacqueline, if you look at your body of work, you know, and maybe she was doing she was talking to me more as my work in the visual arts more, but it might speak to some of the questions that you're asking. She says, you're always telling an untold story, right? The untold story is always at the center of what you're doing. And I've thought about that a lot, you know, um, especially when I was doing the Female Sexual Desires Project, right, where I was collecting all these stories from women about what their sexual desires are all about, you know. Um, I, I felt that male sexual desires, they were everywhere, right? You know, they, they used to sell cigarettes and cars and, you know. But what was the nature of female sexual desires? And so I went on a journey to figure out. And so I ended up with 150 women telling me their female sexual desires. I have not seen that done. I had not seen it done before, despite everyone telling me it was done before. But I have not seen it before, right? And I was happy to be doing it. But so I'm always um, uh, doing something along those lines, mm -hmm. right? Of um, bringing out a story that has never that's been a, that's been an untold story or a suppressed story in some way. And I suppose what the critics are doing are kind of seeing the pattern in, I suppose it's the, it's the viewer looking at the quilt. I, mean, I suppose the person quilting knows the pattern that they're doing, but the viewer looking at it sees the, the overall picture. I, I, I like what you're saying because I feel very much uh, as the person who is in the process of making the quilt, um, but I haven't really had the chance to step back and see the quilt yet. But other people have more of a distance so they can see what I'm doing easier than I can. Mm. And you know, we've come on to kind of talking about tapestry, we've come on to talking about quilt work, we've come on talking about your grandmother. Um, I wanted to, this is, this is sneaked in, um, but I want to talk to you about the cover 
of the book, you know, we talk. Which book was it again? There's a book that you have three women on. You had the women on the cover. Ah, uh, the River Song. Right. Which I read about it, but I wasn't able to see. But I imagined it in this kind of female silhouette, almost patch, kind of like a, a cutout of, of of women's bodies, um, and the reaction around the world. Yes, yes, yes. To, you know, black women in a in a celebrated on a book cover. Tell us a bit about that. Right. Um, so and the book as well because I'm yeah. So the river song. I I always loved that painting. It's in the um, collection of the National Gallery of Jamaica. It's Three Graces, Corinne, the Haratunian, who um, had come to Jamaica. Um, I think from Armenia after witnessing much atrocities and whatnot, has done a, did a lot of wonderful um, uh, vernacular work in Jamaica. Um, and I, I had always been in love with that work. And I thought it was appropriate for a coming-of-age book, which the, the reverse song is all about. But it got me into so much trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, because of the three nude women. Um, and it just shows how charged female bodies are, mm. you know. Mm. Um, in a place like Morocco, where I was on a Fulbright Fellowship, you're like, oh, and to boot, you know, you, it's not as though you can see vaginas or anything. These are highly stylized female bodies. Um, but in a place like Morocco, you're like, oh, okay, all right, um, a Muslim country. I mean, it is one of the most uh, liberal Muslim country, but all right, let's call it Muslim countries a Muslim country but I mean it became a problem in Jamaica you know where you know it was supposed to go to a, a book fair but they couldn't really show it because there were naked women on the cover but even here in the United States there was a problem with the book cover and I think the problem with the book cover is not three nude women that you cannot see, breast, vagina, anything, highly stylized painting. It's three women by themselves in their self-created world who do not need anyone but themselves for their reflection. I think that's the real problem here. Thank you for tuning in to New Caribbean Voices, People 3 Press Literary Podcasts. I hope you enjoyed my old talk with Jacqueline Bishop, as well as that fascinating and intense story written and read by Leonie Ross, President Daisy. Wasn't the ending quite surprising? That's all we have time for today. The podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Clarissa Luard Award for Independent Publishers in the Arts Council of England. I'd like to say a special thanks to our producer, Melody Triumph, and thank you for listening. Please tune in and look out for more episodes of New Caribbean Voices. I'm Malika Booker, and I've been your host for this episode.